Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to today's Federalist Society virtual event. Today, November 3rd, 2022, we are excited to present Tawari v. Friedlander, which rational basis test is it anyway? My name is Jack Capizzi and I'm an assistant director of practice groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. After our speakers have given their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for any questions you may have. If you do have a question, please type it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle those questions as we can uh, as the event progresses. Uh, with that, thank you for being with us. I'll hand it over to our moderator for today's event, Adam Griffin. Uh, Adam, the floor is yours. Thank you, Jack, and thank you to our speakers, our audience on the call today, and to the Federalist Society. We are here today to discuss uh, Tawari versus Friedlander. A cert petition is pending in that case before the United States Supreme Court that asks whether the 14th Amendment provides meaningful protection for the right to earn an honest living under whether it's deeply rooted in history and tradition and what the proper test is for protecting that right under the 14th Amendment. The petitioners, Dependa Tawari uh, and Kishore Sapkota, challenge Kentucky's Certificate of Need Law, which prevents them from opening their home health agency in Louisville, Kentucky. The petition discusses different applications of the rational basis test, which is the current standard for protecting economic liberty under the 14th Amendment, and surveys lower courts' disagreements over the proper application of that standard, and the petition asks the Supreme Court to clarify the standard that should be used to protect economic liberty and argues that it's deeply rooted in history and that right is deeply rooted in history and tradition under the court's recent landmark decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization and Glucksburg. Here to discuss this case is Andrew Ward, the lead attorney for the petitioners. Mr. Ward is an attorney at the Institute, excuse me. Mr. Ward is an attorney at the Institute for Justice and the petitioner's lead attorney where his practice focuses on protecting Americans' economic freedom from arbitrary government infringement. He is the head leader in IJ's new Fresh Start practice. In that practice, he defends individuals who have been denied their economic liberty due to prior criminal convictions. In that practice, he has led clients to victory in a Pennsylvania Supreme Court case in, on behalf of cosmetologists, eliminating the a good character requirement under Pennsylvania law for cosmetologists trying to enter the field. Before coming to the Institute for Justice, Andrew clerked for Judge Edward Corman in the Eastern District of North Carolina and Judge Raymond Bruinder in the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Commenting on Mr. Ward's cert petition and presentation is Professor David Upham the Director of Legal Studies and Associate Professor in the Politics Department at the University of Dallas, where he focuses on constitutional law, history, and political and legal theory. Professor Upham is among the nation's leading scholars on the history and original meaning of the 14th Amendment. One of my personal favorites of, among his articles and many contributions to the literature is Interracial Marriage and the Original Understanding of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, published in the Hastings and Law Quarterly, where he surveys the original understanding and argues that the right to marry is fundamentally deeply rooted in history and tradition, a civil right of citizens protected under the privileges or immunities clause, and that race discrimination in relation to the right to marry is prohibited under the 14th Amendment. Therefore, Loving versus Virginia um, was correctly decided on original meaning grounds. Professor Upham is currently working on a book project on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. He received his JD from the University of Texas School of Law and a PhD from the University of Dallas. Uh, thank you both so much for being here. Mr. Ward, the floor is yours. Hey, thank you. Uh, it's, it is, of course, good to talk to you again, Adam. Uh, we know each other and I am, I am happy to be here. Uh, thanks to, to FedSOG for the invitation. So I'm, so I'm hoping uh, to start off here just by talking a little bit about the facts of what's going actually going on in this case and what's happened 
and then maybe a little bit about the, the substance of our cert petition. Um, so what is going on here is you have two immigrants who are really trying to live the American dream. Uh, my clients, uh, Dependra Tawari and Kishore Sapkota, both immigrated from Nepal uh, and made their way to Louisville, Kentucky. Um, they both have experience in home health. Uh, Dependra is an accountant. He worked at a home health agency. Kishore is a home health aide. And when they met, this light bulb turned on and they thought they really could do something good and, and useful and, and start a great business, um, starting a home health agency to cater to other Nepali speakers in Louisville. Now, you might not think there are so many Nepali speakers in Louisville, Kentucky, but there are actually a, a fair number of refugees there um, from Bhutan. There's a long history there, but in the early 2000s, tens of thousands of Nepali speakers uh, left that area, went all around the world, uh, and several thousand um, now live in Louisville, Kentucky. They don't all speak English, particularly the older ones. You know, there are different cultures than than um, people who have lived in Louisville for, for hundreds of years. And, and so my clients wanted to be able to start a business catering to that. Um, home health is not brain surgery. It is not building a hospital with a billion dollars of, of investment. Um, it's sending nurses and occupational therapists to people's homes. Um, uh, a normal visit is an hour, an hour and a half. You apply basic therapies. Sometimes it's just helping with ambulation taking a shower, going to the bathroom, things like that. Um, so they decided to open up this agency, Grace Home Care. And that's when they ran into the law that were challenging, Kentucky's Certificate of Need Law. And what that law says is you cannot open a new certain kind of healthcare business, and home health is among those, unless it's needed. Um, that's a strange thing to, to think of. It's, it's hard to imagine somebody saying, you know, oh, I, I want to open up a lemonade stand and then the government saying, whoa, we don't need delicious drinks on a, on a hot, sunny day. But that's how it works in this field. And um, the way need is determined, it goes in two parts. So the first is just this mechanical calculation. The state of Kentucky assumes that every specific county will use home health care at the same rate as the state overall. And if it does, new home health agencies are not allowed to open, or if it's using it at less than the statewide rate. There's some tweaks for demographics and, and little adjustments. All of this is like literally sixth grade arithmetic. Um, and under that formula, in 95% of the state, new home health agencies are just flatly banned. They cannot open. The counties have changed a little since we filed suit, but when we, when we filed this case, it was six counties um, in, out of all of the 120 in Kentucky where new home health agencies were allowed, and every other one, they were banned. They've been banned in Louisville for at least 15 years. The record indicates it's probably longer. The last time any sort of con application was granted in Louisville was, was 1995. Um, that's 95% of the state, and it's where my clients end at stage one. Now, if there's a mathematical under this arithmetic, then you have to litigate against all the existing home health agencies who try to disprove that there's a need for your business because they can fill that need themselves. So if you're in one of those handful of counties where a new agency is even theoretically possible, you go into what is essentially administrative litigation. You hire a law firm, you go into discovery, you put on witnesses, you put on dozens of exhibits, maybe you get references from local politicians, uh, you put on testimony, you have a several day long hearing, uh, the existing businesses litigate against you. And if after all of that, you can prove that there is a need, how you prove that's an open question, there's no defined need criterion at this point. Uh, a staff attorney just sort of renders a decision. But if after all that, you can prove there's a need after spending, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in that quasi litigation, then you can finally open. Um, between the flat ban in nearly all of the state and this de facto trial process in the rest, uh, no entirely new homegrown agency has opened in Kentucky in at least the last 20 years out of 212 um, applications. And that's to say nothing of people that didn't decide um, to apply at all, knowing the burdens they would face. Um, now, why does this exist? There was a reason many decades ago based on Medicare financing and how that worked at the time. Why does it exist today? It's pure political capture. Um, 
Nearly everyone who studies this issue agrees. The federal government has been saying this for decades. It encouraged these laws, realized they were a mistake, and then started saying so back in uh, the 1980s, said it again in 2004, said it again uh, under the uh, Trump administration, under the Obama administration, the FTC, the DOJ, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, agency after agency said these, these laws are a problem. In fact, a woman who used to run the con program in Kentucky says it's basically just shenanigans by existing players. It's it's a relic um, that harms the public interest. Uh, so my clients sued about it. They have they have no way uh, to change this law. They have no way to apply for a con uh, in a way that could ever possibly work. And so they sued. And almost immediately, the existing agencies, the hospital association, intervened to try to keep them out of business. And what happened after that in this case really exemplifies the problem with the current legal test that applies to these sorts of economic restrictions. Uh, we saw it really ping pong back and forth between real review and fake review. Um, so at first, um, Judge Walker, um, who was our judge at the time, um, basically said, you know, this looks ridiculous. This is a motion to dismiss, so I can't issue a final judgment, but it sure looks like there are there is an overwhelming academic consensus. There is every reason to believe that this is just pure political protectionism, keeping people out of the market to benefit existing players. And, and if anything shows that, it's the intervention of the hospitals. It's not like patients are trying to intervene in this case. Um, and he said it really looks like these people have stated a claim. He leaves uh, because he was he was nominated to the D.C. Circuit. We get another judge and then we get a completely different ruling on summary judgment, under which it seems like we have no chance whatsoever. Uh, the judge excludes or, or calls irrelevant most of the evidence that we presented, which is the same evidence um, supporting the claims that Judge Walker had said stated a claim at the motion to dismiss stage. Uh, Chief Judge Stiver says none of that matters. Uh, the only thing that you could possibly show is that although it's permissible, it is also irrational. It's a standard that doesn't even sound possible to meet. And we go up to the Sixth Circuit, and then something else happens. Uh, the Sixth Circuit says that this law sure seems like a bad idea. Um, it's got a pretty low grade on the rational basis test. That's the, the formal name of, of the test that our cert petition is about. It teeters on the edge, but we're going to have to say that it passes, but it's very close. But that said, it may well be that the plaintiffs have a point. You know, They have the option of further review. Um, in the federal courts, meaning appeal to the Supreme Court. And uh, Judge Sutton um, of the Sixth Circuit, who wrote the panel opinion, said, you know, there's a lot of criticism of this test. Uh, there's some inconsistencies. It, it doesn't necessarily make sense to think of this as an economic right as opposed to a personal freedom. And he says these critics may have a point. And that's the issue we're trying to bring to the Supreme Court now. The there is supposed to be a right, and I'm happy to talk about the substance of our cert petition more, but there's a very, very long tradition of the common law and the federal court system protecting a right to engage in a meaningful occupation, to quiet trade, to earn an honest living. And that's really what we're asking the Supreme Court to sort out. Um, we just in this one case, we've seen three different tests uh, throughout the law more broadly. There's all sorts of mess that I'm happy to talk about. But let me stop there for a moment. That's how we got to the cert petition. Do you want me to talk a little bit about what we're petitioning about? So uh, would you like me to turn it to Professor Oppum for commentary? Or would you like to, to explain the, the divide over the rational basis test? Sure. So, so I'll, I'll say just a little bit, I'll bit a little bit more about that. So the rational basis test is the standard that it has its origins in the 19th century, but it really starts clearly applying to these sorts of claims um, in the 1930s. And it kind of sounds okay on its face. It says that a law needs to have a rational relationship to a legitimate state interest. Um, but the court in the ensuing decades has never really been clear about what that means. Um, it has decided cases where it says, you know, the state's arguments don't really make sense. They haven't provided evidence of a point. And so we're going to allow someone to enter a trade he's barred from, barred from in a case like Schwer versus Board of Bar Examiners in 1954, or in a case uh, Cleburne uh, versus uh, Living Center versus the, the city of Cleburne, Texas, that 
you know, your reasons for denying a permit for um, to have a group home don't really seem to make sense. This isn't causing any trouble. And this is just like naked politics. You don't like these people. You don't want them around. And that's illegitimate. Uh, but in other cases, the court has said basically that the limits of what the state can do under this test are, are just the limits of the human imagination. If there is anything conceivable that anyone could imagine to save a law, it doesn't even have to be the party's lawyers. Uh, if the state doesn't do a good, good enough job defending a law, uh, the judge is welcome to make something up herself. Um, sometimes the Supreme Court has articulated the standard that way. Um, and courts have, you know, taken that direction and really run with it. In some cases, um, you have them following the earlier cases and they're really assessing evidence, being deferential to the state, not um, imposing something like um, the way you would look at a restriction on speech, but being but checking evidence, saying, does this actually make sense in the real world? And then in other cases, you have courts going down the complete fantasy route. They will say that you can license forests because of forests, because of the possibility that a buyer of a bouquet might prick himself on a little tie holding the flowers together or might get sick from infected dirt in a bouquet. You know, things that everyone knows do not actually happen in real life. You have uh, cases, in fact, one happened just the other day. Uh, where the court said, the D.C. Circuit said, it's rational to expect daycare providers to get college degrees. Because, you know, if you have a college degree, when a two-year-old keeps asking why, 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 uh, you know, if you're taking courses on art and history, you might be able to answer those questions better. Uh, and what we're looking for is the Supreme Court to really sort through this mess. There are other cases where the courts just call it a mess, where they say it's a dilemma, it's perplexing, it's confusing about what to do. Um, it's actually gotten to the point where there are even circuit splits about metaphors. There is a circuit split over whether the rational basis test has teeth. Uh, some courts will say it has teeth. Some courts will call the test toothless. Uh, there is a circuit split um, about whether it's a rubber stamp. Uh, it, is, it is a judicial rubber stamp, says the Ninth Circuit. It is not a judicial rubber stamp, uh, says other cases in the Sixth. So everyone acknowledges there's this mess, and we're really asking the Supreme Court to sort that out and to sort it out in a way that protects the right to earn, earn an honest living, which I, I suppose uh, I, I can talk about, but uh, Professor Elton is probably even more prepared to talk about the long history of that at, at common law. Uh, Professor Elton? Oh, thank you very much. Um, and um, I'm, I'm going to make some, some comments that, that may suggest a disagreement, although you know, if I were litigating this case in the federal courts, um, I, I, this, it seems I might make the very same arguments um, given the current status of the law. Um, my main points are going to be that the rational basis test uh, doesn't seem to have any foundation at all in the Constitution, even though it is deeply rooted in our judiciary's precedence over the past 70 or 80 years. Um, but at the same time, insofar as um, one or more justices on the court and I'm pretty convinced Justice Thomas might be one of them, is interested in um, reconsidering even 80 years of precedent in light of the actual text and original understanding of the Constitution, uh, then perhaps uh, my rem remarks are not merely academic, but, but are even relevant uh, to current adjudication. Um, the, the rational basis test, um, which... Um, which, which um, Andrew rightly uh, indicated is, you know, the legitimate rationally related to a legitimate uh, government or, or state interest is, um, is another way of saying the laws have to be just. Um, and the problem with saying that that's a constitutional rule is certainly a, a moral rule. I, I think that justice is an intelligible principle, but it's very difficult. There's a lot of disagreement about it, but it's not an illusion. Um, is it's not law in the sense of the Constitution. No provision of the Constitution, even though there's, you mean virtually, the, the Supreme Court has, un has issued unanimous decisions endorsing the rational basis test. So uh, it's the virtually unanimous ass assertion of the federal judiciary for decades now that there is a rational basis test somewhere. Um, but it's another way of saying the Constitution tells the states, uh, be ye just. Um, 
And they're just simply asked that, that there be good cause for exercising coercion over the person and property of individuals, including coercing them by prevent by taxing them or regulating them uh, from participating in a, in a market. Um, no provision of the Constitution does that. The only one I can think of that on its face might go in that direction, absent some you know, further further inquiry, would be the article, the Fourth Amendment, which says no unreasonable searches and seizures. Um, that probably means something more specific um, in its original meaning, but it does seem to suggest the kind of a general, you know, be be reasonable, be fair uh, with with people when you're searching and seizing uh, property. But as for the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, neither its text nor I think its original understanding includes any kind of this general um, uh, rule rule of fairness. Um, the, rather, there are rather specific determinations of justice being made through uh, three through three clauses. That the more I look at them, the more I don't think that they are open ended or majestic generalities. Um, that's not the way. You, none of those words are going to be synonyms for majestic generalities. Um, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. That's the first clause of that second sentence. The second sentence has two predicates. We call them clauses, but it's actually just one clause. Nor shall any state uh, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, of those clauses, I'm going to speak of them in reverse um, reverse order. Um, the first refers to, as it says, it's about not withholding the protection, whatever it might be that the laws provide. There can be no crystal knocked. There cannot be any open season on somebody's. The laws are suspended tonight so people can get beat up or lynch law can happen. Uh, the states may not deny. Instead, they must provide uh, the equal protection of the laws. Um, that's by some of my research. That's what they originally intended. Conversely, the states must refrain from acting. They cannot deprive anyone, kill anyone, throw them in prison, take their stuff without going through a process, a trial that is according to law. Um, those two provisions do not have um, they aim at justice and aim at reasonableness, but they are specifications and determinations uh, as to what ought to happen. There ought to be a protective function of government. That is that is not denied, and there ought to be a um, a process when the government is exercising its necessary coercion to enforce its laws, uh, and coercion that can include killing people, or throwing them in prison, or taking their stuff. The last clause is: no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Um, that has some reference to some sort of fundamental rights that cannot be abridged. It doesn't say they can't be abridged unreasonably or irrationally. It just says they cannot be abridged at all. Um, and to turn one of those rights into I have a right to not be treated unfairly is uh, to do violence to uh, the very nature of law itself, which is specifications of justice. And secondly, it would be to suggest that somehow we as Americans have a commitment to justice to our own citizens, but outsiders can be beat up or treated roughly and unjustly. Um, and although there are certain political societies that do tend to think, well, only insiders get justice and everybody else gets just the beatings, um, our, our Anglo-American legal tradition treats human beings as such, as entitled to justice. Um, that all that being said, I do think there is a, a pretty sound basis for uh, an originalist um, to side with the petitioners in this case. What the petitioners are asking to do based upon my, I'm just, I have, I've not been deeply involved in this. I've just looked at some of the, the, the briefs. Uh, they're, they're asking to enter one of the lawful markets um, that citizens of the United States, um, as defined by the laws of the state of Kentucky, allow people to do. This is not like a market for prostitution, uh, a market for gambling that may or may not be something that should be allowed, but it's not a, it wouldn't be called a lawful uh, occupation. And in order to enter that market, they have to prove that somehow their, their presence is necessary. And it seems to me that the, the rights of citizenship, unlike sort of the rights of due process, they include the right of the citizen to travel around any part of his or her country, to reside anywhere, to open a business in any particular place where he or she can open a business, to make use of the tribunals. All of those rights I'm mentioning are rights listed in Corfield versus Coriel, which is the uh, sort of the, the most authoritative treatment of privileges and immunities of citizens. Um, and um, 
when you say there has to be a certificate of need, it would be akin to saying, well, before you you can move to, move to Texas, uh, we need to know whether whether your presence is going to be necessary or helpful or not. Um, there might be lots of rational bases for saying, I'm only saying this half jokingly as a Texan, that there are too many Californians moving to Texas. Um, there may be all sorts of rational bases for, for limiting immigration into the United States. But insofar as once you're a member of the community, Texas has no right to exclude Californians uh, on, uh, from, from their residing here on the basis they have to show a certificate of need. And it seems to me the same thing applies here. It'd be one thing to say that the people who want to enter this market don't know how to do it, that people will die. Um, so you can have licensing, as he indicated, for things like, you know, nurses and doctors. And you could even have licensing for this to show that the people are, are, are have at least a re reasonable competence to care for the elderly, I would say. But uh, that's different from saying I need to show that the market needs me. Um, to a certain extent, the Constitution doesn't, no matter how rational an exclusion might be, the Constitution doesn't allow us, doesn't allow the states to exclude any citizen from participating in its territory or its markets or its judicial process, or for that matter, freedom of speech. Okay? Well, you don't need a certificate of need to um, write a letter to the editor or start a blog or start a political association, even though many political associations, frankly, perhaps shouldn't exist. Perhaps they're useless. Perhaps they're even harmful. The country is who we are. These are our members and our members have a right to participate in these things that belong to the community. Uh, and the market, a lawfully established market is both private, but it's also something that the public uh, makes for its citizens. Um, and insofar as, as the petitioners are citizens, and I understand that they're, they're, they're immigrants, but I, I'll assume for this that they're, they're lawful permanent residents, at least, or have lawful status, have been admitted. They, they are citizens. Okay, okay. I'll take it back. Um, then I, I think that they have, I think they have a, a very solid basis under the Privileged Immunities Clause. And I have a fairly, for me, a fairly restrictive sense of how far the 14th Amendment goes. But when you have, it's not every regulation that has to prove its reasonableness but an exclusionary, a complete exclusionary basis where the, where the, the test itself is called a certificate of need. Um, that's, that's another way of saying, you need to prove your citizenship again, if that makes sense. Um, you need to prove you're a member of our community again. And I think that decision has already been made by the, by the immigration naturalization laws or by our 14th Amendment's definition of citizenship. And once made, it's the job of the states to uh, to to not put up barriers anymore. I think that's all I'd like to say. I can say a lot more, but I think that's what I, that's the summary of what I'd like to say now. Thank you, Professor Upham, uh, and thank you, uh, Mr. Ward. Those are both great great remarks. Um, I should say, if anyone has questions, um, to uh, please uh, use the question uh, question and answer function below. You can enter uh, any questions into that. Uh, Q&A box, and uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, I wanted to start, uh, Ms. Ward, I'll give you a chance to respond to one another, and we'll have a little discussion here. Um, Professor Upham, I just wanted to clarify your, your perspective. So you think that you know, citizens have privileges or immunities, and that as part of that, a citizen can go anywhere between states or anywhere within his own state or within a state, and has the right to open a business anywhere within the state, now, there may be licensing requirements, there may be health and safety requirements, but there cannot be a, you must demonstrate a need to open a business here. Yeah, insofar as it's acknowledged that these people are competent to do that, and that's not what's going on with the certificate of need, um, then they are cap they are effectively, as, as defined by the laws of the state, able, able to do so. This is an additional obstacle that I think is, um, is unconstitutional. Okay, and then um, before I, Go to other questions. Uh, Mr. Ward, would you like to respond to um, any of Professor Upham's remarks on the rational basis test or the protection for uh, the right to open a business or earn a living? Well, I, I think Professor Upham is, as to the parts that we agree about or my clients win, I think he is 100% correct. Um, I, you know, I, I did want to note that, that my clients um, are not challenging any of these separate um, restrictions about quality uh, of care that you know, there, there are health and safety regulations in this field, un, unsurprisingly. Uh, and of, of course, they're not they're not challenging those. They have every intention of, of meeting those. They're, they're challenging only a restriction that says you simply can't be uh, in the market. And, and I think I just stress if you um, 
were in that originalist position, um, if, if the way that you think that this is most appropriately resolved sort of historically correctly is that, you know, this is this should have been about privileges or immunities and small digression. That means overturning uh, some yeah. some 19th century <laughs> cases called the slaughterhouse cases, uh, which is something that that my organization would, would very much like to see happen. I, I would just like to stress how much there is of that tradition of saying you can't exclude someone from a market outright uh, there, you know, that those cases exist starting um, at the very latest in the early 1600s. And even there, they're, they're putting the right back, uh, tracing it to, to Magna Carta. I mean, there's the case of the monopolies, the case of Taylor's um, things very early on saying, you know, you can't just say only one person gets to do it. And that is effectively what we have here. Now that this is an oligopoly, not a monopoly. There are maybe about seven agencies in Louisville, uh, and that number hasn't been, but that number hasn't been allowed to change uh, upwards for for at least fifteen years, and it hasn't actually changed in twenty seven or so years. That this is the kind of exclusion that there is a very long history uh, of saying it is just not within the lawful power of of government. I, now, I, I think a point maybe we we could talk about of disagreement with with each other here is that I do think there's all there is that tradition of fairness. I, I mean. Um, you you could say that the court has historically in, in the 20th century gotten it wrong. You could certainly take that view. But, you know, the court has been saying for a long time um, that there does need to be at least a rational relationship. Um, and we think it's appropriate to, to have that mean what it says and, and rational mean, re, you know, actually rational, not the kind of things that the, the jokes that pass under the test these days. I mean, one of the Sixth Circuit's holdings was that one reason that it would be rational to ban a niche language agency is that that will get you niche language agencies. Like, if you give business to the existing incumbents, they might take the extra profit and decide to invest it in translation apps so that they can serve people that you could just serve with the agency designed to serve them. I mean, that's the sort of thing that passes for rational under the current test. Um, and it shouldn't. And, and, and there is a long history in, in a lot of cases in the 18th century and the 19th century of, of talking about that general principle about, you know, a fair relation, um, a substantial relation, uh, things like that, to, that I think the court should be recognizing. Uh, Professor Upham, any response before we turn to questions? Yeah, and it's not so much a direct response, but it's just a general a, a f sort of further elaboration of why I, I, I don't, um, uh, apart from the fact that I think it's, it's contrary to, to the nature of the Constitution, to sort of say it has just a general um, a fairness test, is, is the, is the, it's just not appropriate and it's not a, a good place for the judiciary to be engaging in this. Um, when you have a legislature, um, filled with fallible fallen human beings, just like the people you find in the judiciary. The legislature has not only by law, but in fact, it is a somewhat more representative body that was gonna happen in the, in the courts. Um, and the judiciary, if they're gonna say, we're gonna second guess what happened in the committee meetings and in the, um, in the legislative chambers, not just what they said, but also their failure to change the law to adapt uh, um, because the law is, once was rational, but is no longer rational. Um, the people aren't represented in the courtroom. Um, there may be someone who says, I represent the state, uh, but that assistant attorney general or district attorney, or often, often may even be a private litigant who has to try to defend the rationality of the law in a civil case, is simply not adequately able to 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 speak on behalf of all of the reasons and arguments why why a law may have been made, um, and a judge isn't uh, capable of assessing those things. Um, and in fact, what it would do in a lot of cases, it would give an unreasonable advantage to people that can do better data dumps um, and uh, engage in. Uh, in, it, in not all cases are like this, but to a certain extent, to, to do to replace a government by elected legislatures to assess the reasonableness and rationality of laws and replace that with adjudication is I think to do us harm to our sort of government by the people. Um, 
Lots of laws are kind of stupid. They're all, but almost all of them are a little bit smart. That's just the way people are. Um, and it's difficult to, to say that this law is completely without a rational basis. And it's also, well, at any rate, this is a long argument, but yeah. Well, well thank you all. I appreciate it. It's, uh, you know, it's good to hear some agreement on this right to earn a living, this economic liberty, right to open a business deeply rooted in history and tradition and complete exclusion or these kinds of certificate of need exclusionary laws would violate the rule protecting that right, but then a disagreement about you know, whether there is a rational basis, whether there is some kind of rationality review that's deeply rooted in the in the you know the history and tradition. If there's a rationality review, or there's not a component because it might infringe sort of our democratic institutions versus it being a fundamental backstop on on uh, legislation from the courts. So um, we'll turn to Q and A. Would the same reasoning that you both have offered justify striking down local real estate zoning laws? I'm not sure what expertise. Either of you have on those or, or if you if you can speak to whether you think zoning laws or local real estate zoning laws would be threatened by this, this view about where you can open a business or the right turn an honest living. Well, well, I can take that because I, IJ does, you know, do some some work in the zoning space. Um, and, and I think it depends now. Now, certainly under the sort of flat ban type historical reasoning. I don't think that is going to have very much to say about um, zoning laws. Uh, I think the kind of real and substantial type rationality review does have something to say about that, um, that, that you can, um, you know, and, and a good example of that is, is Cleburne itself or Another case my firm just litigated where uh, a town was basically trying to use the zoning laws uh, to keep out a homeless shelter, not because there was any legitimate public health and safety justification, but because they just didn't want those people around. Um, I think different zoning laws are, are of course, going to um, fare differently under that sort of rational basis with bite, real and substantial test, you know, keeping factories that make a ton of noise and spew pollutants in one part of town may well have something totally different than, than a, a law saying um, you simply can't do something with your property. You can't look after children in your own home. That's, um, that's uh, an IJ case or, uh, you know, you maybe this isn't zoning per se, but, but your business might need to have a certain minimum parking number of parking spaces uh, that that sort of business could never absolutely, absolutely never use. You know, here I am a lawyer saying it depends, but but I think that some zoning laws, yes, uh, would fail under a, a standard of of real legitimacy, real legitimacy, because often they aren't. Professor Upham, any any comment on that? I'm, I'm just generally think zoning laws probably are, are are not unconstitutional. They might be terribly unreasonable, but um, um, they're, they're, those are matters of geographic um, uh, discrimination. Uh, they're matters of uh, identifying certain places where you can only do certain things and others. And uh, they they can be greatly great infringement on people's enjoyment of their property. But the, the 14th Amendment, I don't think, goes. Um, uh, to, to correct those things. And is that because, so, you know, if there's a zone where you can't open businesses, it's commercial because everyone equally cannot open a business in that area. It wouldn't be a kind of exclusion from the market type thing. Well, there's never, no laws are perfectly equal. So every law is going to give some advantage or disadvantage, I'd say. So if you say that, yeah, but somebody who's already got a business down the road already just got an advantage. And a lot of times that, <laughs> The, the economic interests are, are big motivators in all politics and including adjudications um, uh, in, in lots of direct and indirect ways. So I wouldn't I'm not going to say it's a perfectly equal thing. It's just that um, it doesn't it defines um, it defines markets, as it were. And uh, nobody's excluded from the market uh, in, in any kind of in any obvious sort of legal sense. Now, you could say deeply deep down they knew what they were doing and this was going to they knew whose ox was going to get gored by this. And that, that, that's, um, there, that, that could conceivably, there are due process issues where you have, um, uh, where you have a zoning law where the, the person whose ox is getting gored is known and, and is known consciously by the legislator, legislature that, that that's akin to a bill of attainder or something where it's not a general law anymore. 
But if law doesn't have that kind of particularity where uh, you're afraid that somebody's consciously, and some taxes in the 19th century are struck down because the taxes are defined in such a way that everybody knows who's going to get taxed and the legislatures know that. But that would be a peculiar exception. Thank you. Um, I think this one's uh, for Mr. Ward. In the case below, was there a defense asserted by the state of failure to exhaust administrative remedies? Um, or was the case beginning with an administrative appeal? appeal? Ooh, high, highly technical. Uh, so number the answer is no. Number one, there's nothing to exhaust. My clients are sort of flat banned. This arithmetic says there's no need. So there's nothing they could have even done in the administrative. I mean, they did go into the administrative process and they were promptly kicked back out uh, because of the formula, which was brought to the attention of the administrative system by one of the local hospitals, a $2 billion conglomerate that was threatened by my client's startup. Uh, but there's nothing to exhaust. And, and in any event, the, the law on this uh, from a case called Patsy versus Board of Regents is that you don't have to exhaust uh, federal constitutional civil rights claims. Thank you. Um, so uh, thanks for the thoughtful discussion. Uh, given that it is easy to distinguish licensing requirements for protectionist purposes, such as the certificate of need in this case, from those for genuine public health and safety purposes, as in the case of medical doctor licensing, why is this case not a bipartisan issue? Um, and she asked, why did only conservatives and libertarians file amicus briefs in favor of the petitioners uh, rather than bipartisan support? Well, I, I reject the uh, premises of, of the question. Uh, it wasn't only conservatives and libertarians that filed an amicus brief. Uh, there was also uh, an immigrants' rights group that focuses on um, South Asian immigrants, uh, and rightfully so. You know, you, what Caroline Products said when it cleaved off so-called economic rights was that, you know, it's not the same if you have a discrete and insular minority with no political power and nobody's put this better than, than Justice Willett, now Judge Willett, uh, in a case endorsing a more rigorous form of review uh, in the Texas Supreme Court under the Texas Constitution, saying there's basically no one more disadvantaged and politically powerless imaginable than people without a lot of money trying to start up a business who are fighting zillion-dollar entrenched players. Um, that's a bit of a tangent there, uh, but it wasn't only conservative and libertarian amici, and it is a bipartisan issue, um, not as much as I would have hoped, um, but the Obama administration um, had a very long report about uh, decreasing licensing and increasing economic liberty um, You know, during a liberal administration. Uh, the federal government, as I mentioned earlier, has consistently criticized con laws, um, regardless of the of the party of the president ever since 1988. Um, I think because of pretty standard things about interest capture, you know, the existing players are very loud voices. It's, it's hard to have political reform in this area of con laws specifically, but more broadly speaking, there is bipartisan um, support on this. You know, some of the things you see in these rational basis cases, um, like that if you want to sell caskets online, like an Amazon for caskets, you have to embalm a bunch of dead bodies for practice, even though that has nothing to do with what you want to do. I mean, sure, that's like businesses and, you know, capitalism, maybe. I don't think that's a left-right issue. I think that's a crazy, not crazy issue. And, and so there is some bipartisan support here. So um, next question is, there seems to be a renaissance of examining the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and all of the Civil War Amendments. Can the panelists compare and contrast their views with those of Professors Randy Barnett and Alan Werman, both of whom have recently published on the topic, um, or any other views um, that you would compare and contrast your own views with? I think Professor Upham's answer is going to be much more informed, and he should go first. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the specific goal, the stated goal of the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, who were given the, uh, the delegated the authority to draft and explain the 14th Amendment by the Congress, who, who in turn received their authority from the people, uh, was to determine the civil rights and privileges of all citizens in all parts of the republic. Uh, that's that's a, an article and it's part of the book I'm working on right now, is looking at that language and taking it seriously. A determination of civil rights and privileges for all Americans throughout the country. Um, my, dis I, I, um, 
relative on this topic relative to Randy Barnett and um, Evan Burnick and Alon Werman, as well as Christopher Green, um, I, I, I disagree with their trying to find as one of the rights under the Privileges or Immunities Clause a freedom from unreasonable arbitrary rules or regulations uh, for reasons I pointed out. Um, no, the text doesn't support it. Um, and the original intent was not to give the judiciary, whom they did not trust, um, a license to sort of roam, roam abroad and seek find out laws to strike down because they didn't seem to be fair. Or taxes didn't seem to be reasonable. Um, too much here, not enough there. Uh, the entire tax code uh, of every state uh, in the United States would be subject to endless and, and endless judicial um, correction under under such a principle because. Um, not because justice is uh, an illusion. Um, it's just that getting it right is extremely difficult. And so there will always be complaints about these things. And most, and, and 90% of the complaints are going to be fair. <laughs> if, you, if, uh, if, if we could see this from, from a divine perspective, we would find the right answer. But the judiciary is not the place to do it. They wanted to settle certain things. Um, and it should be pointed out when the 14th Amendment was adopted, among other things, there are still... Four justices on the court who are veteran supporters of the Dred Scott decision, they weren't sure of two others. Um, they didn't want the Supreme Court and, and the Southern state judges and many of the Northern judges uh, to be in the business of reviewing laws to see if they're fair or not. My, my gosh, I mean, they would have just, they would have lost their lunch over that. Um, they wanted to put things they hoped to, and it didn't work, but they hoped to make certain things clear in the constitution that no future judiciary or uh, Democratic majorities in Congress would be able to uh, undermine these sort of core civil rights. One of which I do think is the right to to enter any any lawful market, uh, simply um, that one is capable of entering uh, without having to prove that the market needs them. Thank you, thank you, Professor Alvin. And I think that it's and correct me if I'm wrong, either of you. It seems like all the certainly Professor Barnett and Professor Werman um, and Professor Green, who you mentioned, and most 14th Amendment scholars think that the 14th Amendment guarantees that right to enter a market, the right to earn an honest living, the right to participate in a common occupation. Yeah. Disagree maybe about how it's protected, where um, I think Professor Werman is only arbitrary discrimination. So you, you couldn't have certainly race-based discriminations, but certain other discriminations, maybe in this case, maybe insiders with a certificate of need as opposed to outsiders trying to get into the market. That might be an unlaw arbitrary discrimination as opposed to an individual right exclusion. Um, and then it, it, my review of the scholarship seems to suggest that there's these old cases that Andrew's talking about where there's a rationality review and Barnett and Burnick's work surveys these rationality cases and um, some of the leading ones post 14th Amendment are like um, Mueller, Mueller, which was um, either about alcohol or milk and um, several other cases leading up to Lochner, um, that dealt with a kind of sub, uh, substantial relation test after Slaughterhouse. And then I think Worman comes in and says those cases were about legislative delegations to municipalities. So it was only rationality review of municipalities. And then it was cases about whether something was a commercial regulation. So it violated the exclusive nature of the Commerce Clause, whether it was a contract regulation, it violated the Contracts Clause, or whether it was a legitimate police power. And so they were doing a rational relationship there. And Worman would say, there is no rationality principle under the 14th Amendment. And then Barnett and Burnick would say those cases, that rule of rationality from those old cases now applies to state legislatures under the 14th Amendment. And that's sort of where the, the drawing line is on rationality, even though all agree that uh, the right to earn non living intermarkets is protected in some way under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, that disagreement on the rationality point. Um, comes into play, uh, I think, in surveying those old cases between Werman and Barnett and Burnick. Um, but my, yeah. my say, and, and maybe this is a, a disagreement or maybe just a qualification, um, that discussion is about, the, as my understanding, is about the meaning of the due process clause. But Correct. The, the rationality is about yeah, the but, due process clause. But when you go to the privileges or immunities clause, Werman does find there that the word abridge means unreasonably abridge. And so then you go back to, uh, you, you have, the, despite his... Uh, despite his um, relative sort of uh, judicial minimalism uh, and a minimalist due process provision, which I agree with, uh, he still finds this rather open ended, you know, race and other unfair classifications. Right. All uh, arbitrary classifications. That, that he finds under privileges or meaners. Now, our courts today for a long time have found that under the Equal Protection Clause. But um, 
um, it would still go to, you have Lochner again, you'd say, well, why should you have a maximum hours for, for bakers for not, but not for office clerks? And the court brought that up and it's one of the basis on which they struck it down. Um, whether it's under due process, equal protection or privileges or immunities, I think it's just not there under any of them. That would be how I disagree with both of them. Interesting. So no arbitrary classifications or arbitrary infringements on individual liberty. You think both of those rules. So Werman thinks there's no arbitrary discriminations, open-ended kind of arbitrary discrimination. Yep. Barnett and Burnick think arbitrary in, infringements on individual liberty, rational relationship to the law, uh, to health and safety purpose. You think both of those arbitrariness cases are out under the 14th Amendment? Yes, I, I think Barnett uh, and Burnick as well uh, find it under both due process and privileges immunities. Whereas uh, Warman only finds it in privileged immunities. Yeah, because even to say, to say, don't be arbitrary is a rule. Well, it is a rule. Uh, it's a rule like love thy neighbor. Um, it isn't the same thing as a law that the human beings would make. Um, and this, you know, um, and, and that is to say it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the beginning of political discussion. Of course, we should not be just. Law should be reasonable. We don't impose penalties and pains on people's bodies and property for no good reason. Um, that's not that's not constitutional law. If, if you don't have that as an agreement before you make a constitution, you've got a sub-political circumstance. You might have war, you might have just terrible, uh, but the American constitution is built by a political community that everyone would agree, be ye reasonable, yes. <laughs> I, uh, the question then is, does the 14th Amendment provide, they provide very, clear, to me, limited specifications as to what reasonableness might mean. So you would come in and say, like on the discrimination side, no race discrimination, no race classifications. Yes. And you would on the individual rights side say, you have a right to enter any market, therefore exclusions like the certificate of need law that prohibit you from entering a market because you have to demonstrate a need, that kind of complete exclusion from the market, ability to enter the market, that would violate the individual right. Yeah, because your your card to enter is your American citizenship. Mm. That's what that's what gets you that right to participate in the market. My my opinion, um, and that question has already been answered. It's by the way, similar comes up in the um, um, why can't I think of uh, Bradwell versus Illinois mm. uh, when she's excluded from licensing to the bar. The the case does not involve actually sex discrimination, but absolute sex exclusion of someone who the, the courts, the court below said, well, she's obviously qualified. We just simply won't have, we just simply, there's simply improper for a woman to be doing this. Um, that rule of impropriety, which when the court, once she, once they acknowledge that she can do this, the door has to be open. Even though, the, you know, the rules deciding whether someone is capable of being a lawyer and those tests are obviously, you could spend countless, just forever complaining that the bar is either too easy or too hard that the standards are too, too lenient or too strict are stupid. But once you identify that someone actually can do something, then the, their American citizenship uh, allows them to participate in that civil, that's, that, that, that market. And so insofar, by the way, as practice of law is, is a profession rather than a public office, which is another interesting question. Um, Mr. Ward, any, do you, do you have any follow-up on the conversation? You, you know, we, we, um, I, I tend to take the Barnett Burnick uh, school of, of things. You know, th this isn't an originalist counter argument. It, it, it's a more philosophical um, uh, one to, to some of what Professor Worman, I'm sorry, Professor Upham was, uh, was saying. Um, and I'm, we agree about the resolution of this case, but, uh, you know, friendly disagreement is better than sort of, yeah. so, so I'll say it anyway, which is just that I don't think I'm skeptical of his structural skepticism of the judiciary. We talk about this some in our, our reply brief in, in support of cert because the Kentucky made some of the same arguments. But, you know, real review has always existed and courts follow it sometimes. It's explicitly existed under the state constitution in Pennsylvania, for example, at least since a 1954 case called Gambone and probably quite a bit earlier than that. And if this were going to lead to endless problems or endless interference with democracy, I think it would have happened already. I also don't believe the courts are, are quite so incapable as some of the, the deference school would suggest. Um, you know, courts can decide government action is illegitimate. They are extremely capable of doing it. They do it all the time in every sort of case under every sort of other constant constitutional provision, albeit those are, are sometimes referring to enumerated things in the text. But 
to take an example from our cert reply, if we tweak this law one little bit and just said that my clients weren't allowed to advertise their business, um, and it's all the same reasons, it's just political capture, we don't want people to know about that business because we want them to call, come to our business. And if the state came into court and said, no, this is going to steer business to incumbents, that's going to lower costs because, you know, they can buy pencils for cheaper if they're bigger businesses. And, you know, the more they the more uh, clients they serve, the better apps they're going to have to provide translators remotely. So it's going to lead to better uh, language and cross-cultural care than this actual agency designed to fill that role. If this were under commercial speech doctrine, that would be laughed out of court as the yes. nonsense that it is. Um, and, and so I, I think courts can and already do do the sort of robust, you know, real, not not necessarily the, you know, Herbert Spencer's social statics that, that there can't be laws in the public good. But real review, I think it already happens and the courts can do it. You, you, it might be hard to define precisely under this sort of test exactly where the line is but you know it's it's hard to say where twilight is exactly but that doesn't mean you can't tell night from day thanks that's a good metaphor um last question and this i think um and thanks to all the questions that we weren't able to get to i apologize uh just uh concession to the shortness of life i think um the and i think it's a good way to wrap up what is the standard if not rational basis so if not rational basis, what is the standard? And other than Justice Thomas, who's on sale on the privileges and immunities clause? Who else is bought into the privileges or immunities clause? We, I, I think the, so ultimately this is a question for the court, right? The court, there, there are virtually no serious modern scholar, left, right, or center, to quote Akhil Amar, thinks Slaughterhouse was correct. So it, it's it's up to the court whether we're going to stay in the current framework or leave it. Um, I think the narrow, historically correct answer, the one that we agree about, is there is a privilege or immunity um, to be able to enter a lawful, lawful market. That's the narrow version. Um, I think an equally correct answer, although it's broader than what the court needs to say here, is that a law needs to be rational in the old school meaning of that term. It needs to have a fair and substantial relation to its purpose, whether as a version of the right protected as a privilege or immunity, or, or whether that's a question of substantive due process. Uh, that's a question for the court. Um, certainly to answer your second question, Adam, you know, Justice Thomas has shown interest in that. Uh, Justice Gorsuch a little bit has acknowledged the possibility too in a case called Tims versus Indiana, which was um, incorporation of the prohibition against excessive fines against the states. I just, I would just add, I think um, that's that's correct. And in um, in Bruin, however, uh, Chief Ju uh, Justice Thomas wrote the opinion. He did not explicitly revive the privileges or immunities clause, but he had five other justices writing with him on using language and terms that suggests he was talking about the privileges or immunities clause after all. He kept on focusing on citizens. He cites um, the originalist, uh, one of the key originalist uh, bits of evidence, which is the, the interpretation of that by the court in Dred Scott, including the right to travel, uh, the right to uh, uh, speak and, and bear arms, et cetera were among the privileges of citizenship. So maybe that was just a deference to him and they let him kind of write that opinion and they wrote wrote on it. I'd say the best one I'm, that I might hope for would be they keep the rational basis test, but they say something about ex that um, the rational basis test when it applies to things that exclude people who are otherwise um, admittedly qualified to provide the service in the market uh, is going to have uh, a lot of teeth. Um, that might be kind of a hybrid uh, with maybe some sort of deference to quoting from Corfield. And they quote Corfield in, in Dobbs um, uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's not, they're, they're not just letting Thomas do his thing. They're, others are joining him or even writing opinions that incorporate part of his concerns. And indeed in Dobbs, you know, that, that's sort of a purely historical analysis under, under the Glucksburg standard, but there is that footnote that says that what does exactly the 14th Amendment incorporate, it's an open question, but it might have something to do with Corfield. And uh, yep. I hope they take it up. Yeah, likewise. 
Well, thank you both so much. Uh, really appreciate you both lending your expertise and your experience on this case and with the history and original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Um, I really appreciated the conversation. I hope our audience did as well. Um, Jack, I'll turn it back over to you at FedSoc and thank you to FedSoc for hosting this event. Thanks, Adam. Absolutely. Well, uh, certainly on behalf of uh, the Federal Society, I want to thank Adam for moderating and Andrew and Professor Upram for their valuable time today. Um, and of course, to our excellent audience for all of their questions. Lister feedback is welcomed at uh, info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on your emails and our website for future webinars. Thank you all for joining us today. We are now adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.